All right, y'all, here we go with a brand new edition of the podcast. Thanks for checking it out. This week on the pod, my friend Mark Nagy, who is currently a community relations officer for the Tennessee Department of Transportation. I say that currently like he's about to leave or something. He's he's a longtime community relations officer at TDOT, and I'm sure will be for the foreseeable future. Before he was at TDOT, Mark was a longtime fixture on the Knoxville TV sports scene at WATE here in Knoxville, but he came a long ways away to get here. He is originally from New York, and he'll tell us a little bit about how he ended up in East Tennessee. Mark's book, Decade of Dysfunction, chronicles the last 10 years of Tennessee football misery. It is really fun to read. If you haven't read it, uh, you need to go check it out. It's not nearly as depressing as you'd think. In fact, A lot of people are saying, including myself, that it was actually very therapeutic. It it, it really did, man. You you laughed, you cried, and uh, you did feel better after reading it. So if you haven't done that, uh, go check it out. You can order a copy anytime at Amazon.com. And Mark recently finished an extra chapter on the 2018 season. So uh, the the abridged version is uh, abridged, extended. I don't know what the correct word is there but uh, anyway you could go check it out at amazon also we tried something new this week we actually recorded this episode at a west knoxville watering hole so there's a little bit of gnat sound in the background i wasn't sure how that was going to work but i think it actually came out pretty cool and might be uh, a fun thing to do in the future so that i don't have to invite guests over to my wife's craft room or go hang out awkwardly in their home or office so uh Y'all let me know what you think about uh, the the background noise. I I think it it sounded fine. Here's my conversation. Without further ado, it's Mark Nagy. All right, we're here live on location. First time I've done this on location. We're uh, we're with the great Mark Nagy here at the, uh, we'll go ahead and give it away for free, the Casual Pint (laughs) Farragut. That's right. Very nice place. Mark, how you doing? Russell, it is great to be here. How are you? Good. uh, Doing well. Thanks for setting this up and uh, doing this, man. Uh, know you got the new chapter of the book out and uh, want to get to that let's, let's go ahead and get that up off the off the top um, you wrote the book decade of dysfunction right uh, that came out about a year ago you got a new chapter out how do folks get that how do they read it well anybody who bought the book uh, over the past 12 months uh, you know somebody had you know asked about this book and I was you know of course joking uh, I think it was when I was on with you guys actually about a week ago. I said, let's let's be honest. It's just a complete cash grab. That's all <laughs> I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to get your $19.98 again. But the truth of it actually is, if you've already purchased the book, the last thing I want you to do is go out there and drop another 20 bucks. So just send me an email, send me a direct message on Twitter, whatever it is, and I'll email you the chapter for free. Yeah. And that's really not that big of a deal. Uh, otherwise, they're on Amazon. There is just an updated 2019 version of Decade of Dysfunction. You'll still see some shady outlet trying to sell the thing on their own. So don't go to that version. Just look Ah. for Decade of Dysfunction updated 2019 version. Uh, You can pick it up there if you've not picked up the book previously. It's also on Kindle as well. And uh, that's the simplest way to get it. Probably we'll have a few 
uh, copies in hand, and I'll be able to ship those out in the weeks to come. So anybody who's interested in it, just let me know. I'll be happy to sign it and, uh, you know, whatever whatever you like. Very good. So is this going to be a, a yearly thing, hopefully? I, I really <laughs> – I, You talk about a cash grab. I mean, that's the ultimate thing. It's like we're just going to – do this every year and make them buy it again. Well, I'll tell you what I thought about doing. <laughs> I'll tell you what I thought about doing because it is quite the undertaking then having to reformat the book and, and stuff like that. I think what I'm actually going to do is perhaps every year write like its standalone chapter and maybe sell the thing for like a dollar or two and just get it on PayPal or do something like that instead of it just being like a straight updated 2020 version, 2021 version, uh, that can grow kind of cumbersome. So I think that this is going to be the only time that I do an updated second version of the book itself, but maybe I'll just start something, you know, as a standalone season recap yeah. and maybe people will be interested in purchasing that. We'll see. Well, I mean, if, if something good ever happens to Tennessee, <laughs> I mean, like if, if, if we ever have a decent season that isn't just a complete and total disaster, then you would have to chronicle that, right? Yeah. I, I've actually, somebody had actually emailed me and said, are you I kind of said the same thing you did. Are you going to do this every year? I said, if they go 15 and 0 this year, this upcoming season, I promise I'll write an, an entire book standalone book on the 2019 season so that's a mark Nagy guarantee that if they go 15 and 0 this season in 2019 i'll write another book all right so i'll let you plug that again here on the way out uh let's go back to the beginning of the mark Nagy story i want to know because i know you're from new york right and that's got to be an interesting story about how you get to knoxville tennessee where are you from in new york i'm from upstate new york from the capital city in albany which is in the eastern part of the state so it's about three hours north of new york city and complete night and day from new york city there's a lot of people who aren't around new york they don't realize that new york city is all is far away from most other you know upstate parts albany syracuse watertown rochester well, even Buffalo. just like right outside yeah like if you go to rye or right Austin sure. or something yep. like there's I mean, it's very bucolic and country and it, everything. It and then just just around the corner, there's the biggest metropolis on earth. Well, I've driven uh, up to Albany you know, many times over the years to visit family. And I've driven up with my kids a few times. And they've even said, he goes, this, this looks like Tennessee. Yeah. And it is because it's, you know, a lot of you know, mountainous areas, a lot of green. Um, it is very, very similar. Upstate New York is very similar to East Tennessee. So uh, every time I go back up, I, I always think about that as well. So answer your question, though. So I grew up in Albany. And growing up, I had heard about Tennessee because my dad had gotten one of his master's degrees at UT Oak Ridge. Okay. So he was here in the late 60s for a year getting that. He never actually went to a game, but I always grew up hearing about Tennessee through him. And this is a long time ago. This is a time when if you want to watch Tennessee on TV in upstate New York, you saw them maybe once a year, uh, through, you know, basically up until like the early 90s. So I grew up a Tennessee fan. But as really? I said in the book, yeah, but I had no idea what it meant. You know, I, I didn't, you know, there was no internet. There's no real way to keep up with the team. Yeah. But if you saw something about Tennessee mentioned, oh, great. You know, it isn't like growing up Once in Once a year, era. If, the, if the Alabama game's on, you might yes. tune into that and, and exactly. cheer for Tennessee. You didn't really know the players exactly. and everything. Exactly. But we did go to the Garden State Bowl 
1981. In okay. De- it was December of 1981. Against Iowa? It, or it was against Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Right. So I always said one of my claims to fame was I was at the Tennessee-Wisconsin Garden State Bowl, and I also, when I worked at Channel 6, I covered the Tennessee-Wisconsin Outback Bowl. So I would <laughs> like to know if there's anyone who actually went to both of those games. I, I think there's very few people that probably went to both of those. The Garden State Bowl, all I remember, because I was eight years old, all I remember was that it was really cold, and there was all this orange and white. Because I just remember seeing orange and white pom-poms yeah. everywhere. And Willie Galt had a return to kickoff for a touchdown. They beat Wisconsin on that day. And uh, then the next time I actually saw Tennessee play in person was 1994, and I moved here for grad school. Okay. A lot transpired uh, between, <laughs> between those years. It was a long rebuild. So, did you go into New York City a lot growing up? I mean, I know you're a Yankees fan. Was, yeah. Is, is that just a proximity thing, basically? Well, yeah, we'd go down probably once a year, either for a Yankees game or to go shopping or to go to a, a play, if I, if I can remember correctly. All, what I do remember about going to New York City, and this is old school New York City, like you know, the dirty New York City, the Ed Pre, Koch, Yeah, the when Pre you didn't Giuliani. want to go to Times Square. Right, exactly. CD. Exactly. And what I remember was on trips there, my dad would hold on to my wrist and basically, like, cut off the circulation because it's like you're not getting within, you know, one eye shot away from me because someone will take your child. It's dangerous. It was. It was real dangerous. But we went, and it was we, – we never drove into the city. We always took a bus into the city because uh-huh. back then especially, it was just a complete nightmare to try and get in and out of, of the area. So – um, is it, back then, uh, the subway was also notoriously dangerous. That was not something that you would just ride in with a family no, and no. kids in tow. No, I don't think – honestly, I don't think we ever went on the subway for that reason alone. I think huh. we could, the bus like took us into these shopping districts and we just sort of walked all around and then, you know, prayed to get out of town, you know, with your all your faculties and your wallet in, in tow. So, um, so, yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York, went down to the city a little bit, when I was looking for college, it was I want to be a sportscaster. So you either you try to get into Syracuse because yeah. that's where Costas, yeah. Tarico, uh, Sean McDonough, Dick Stockton, all those guys. You know sure. that, that's where they all went. And I got in, but it was way too much money. And I also applied to Tennessee, but I was 17 and scared to death to go 800 miles away. Sure. So I ended up going to Geneseo, which is a small state school south of Rochester, about 5,000 students. Had four great years there. Got to do all sorts of TV, radio stuff. It was, it was great. It was the greatest, greatest experience. I love Geneseo, one of my favorite places on earth. So for grad school, it was, I thought, and, and don't get me wrong, I thought I was you know, the stuff coming out. I was a sports director. My oh, TV yeah. station, I ran my radio station. I'm going to get a job easy. Yeah, I, I, there were no job offers. So it was like, okay either go move back home with my parents uh, or go to grad school. So I applied to Syracuse again, once again got in, and once again could not afford that whatsoever. And I applied to Tennessee. And I visited Tennessee with my dad. I still remember this. In early 94, had never been on a plane before. And we come down here, and he drops me off in front of the communications building and said, I'll pick you up in like six, seven hours, whatever it is. And I walk in there, and they start talking to me. And they're like, okay, you're the one who likes sports, right? I'm like, yeah. They said, okay. <laughs> the one. Yeah. Because they're telling me, you know, it's all like, you know, uh, theological and all this. I'm like, oh, this, this sounds like a complete drag. I'm not going to want to do this. 
And they said, well, you're one of like sports. Okay. And they like take out this book and they start rifling through it. And they said, okay, you need to talk to Barry Rice because he does a lot of things with sports. I'm like, oh, okay. I have no idea who Barry yeah. Rice is. <laughs> and, you know, and then, of course, years later, you realize, okay, Barry is kind of a big deal. Kind of a yeah. big deal and easily one of the most talented people, you know, in the business when it comes to video production. And they said, okay. And so I talked to him. And then you also need to go talk to Joe Harrington. Mm-hmm. And Joe Harrington had just started as the Tennessee video um, guru, you know, for football. So, you know, I got to – I met with Joe, and Joe's like, hey, I need somebody to shoot practice. You want to do that? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. So I so immediately my, my tune changed because it got my foot in the door doing – stuff with the University of Tennessee, and that made the decision easier for me to move down here in August 94. I'm so jealous hearing that because, like, when I went to UT in 98, it was my first year. My freshman year is 1998. We won the national championship. Right. Um, I got nothing like that. Like, nobody told me, oh, you go talk to this guy or this guy. I was just <laughs> right. like, I want to be in sports, but nobody told you how to do sure. it. And, uh, man, I just drifted for the most part until I finally – Got up the nerve to go and start a practicum at, yep. at, a, at a radio station. But, um, man, I wish somebody had uh, – I mean, you were fortunate that, you, that they told you on day one you need to go visit with Barry Rice and Joe Harrington. I was extremely lucky, and I was there about a week, and all of a sudden they had said, hey, Mark, you used to do play-by-play, right? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, well, Channel 10 is looking for somebody to do play-by-play for high school football. And back in the day, they had this thing called TNI which was an independent cable station which operated out of the basement of WBIR. It's now on your cable. It's now 10 News 2, you know, the, the news that just you know, reruns 24 yeah. hours a day. So that's what they ended up doing, doing with it years later. But for like two or three years, it was its own independent TV station, but it you know, was run out of WBIR. So just with my foot in the door that way, I was able to do play-by-play for high school football, basketball. Um, we did Tennessee softball in their inaugural year. We did Tennessee volleyball. I got to produce shows. We did a hunting and a fishing thing and all these things. It was just unbelievable experience. It's yeah. an auto racing show at the old Atomic Speedway and 411 Speedway. For somebody who's 21 years old, I mean, it was just it was perfect. It didn't matter, you know, again, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it was. I didn't care. It was invaluable experience. I got extremely lucky, and there, there's no way I would have then, a couple years down the line, then started my, my TV career without that experience. So, I was very lucky. Uh, no joke. Here's how chaotic and disorganized the, the radio, and I use the word program loosely here, was when I, when I got there. And I can't remember when I started, if it was like 99 or 2000. But uh, finally, like, they give you like a shift, like you're on for two or three hours at this music station, 90.3 WTK. Sure. And I don't even think, you know, Benny Smith does a great job now running it. But back then, there, I don't think there was anybody running it. And the guy, <laughs> I, I'll, I, I, people think I'm making this up. The guy who showed, let me in to the radio station is like at 10 o'clock at night. He's like, oh, you got two hours, and uh, here's the microphone. Here's the on button. Like, I've, I've never run micro, uh, radio equipment before. Right. And he says, when you're done, this is before automation. We actually play CDs yeah. on the air. Right. He said, when you're done, because there's nobody coming in after you, take this mix CD, put it on repeat, and just leave it. <laughs> That's what we did. I was like, are you serious? And he's like, oh, yeah. So that's what I did. Well, 
You know what's interesting is my second year of grad school, I actually got a, my um, graduate assistantship was running WUTK. Uh-huh. So that was from 94, so the 95-96 academic year, yeah. that was my, uh, my assistantship. So that meant a tuition waiver and a stipend. You know, when you're 22 years old, $5,000 is all the money in the world. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it I must have fallen apart right after you left. It, oh, of course. <laughs> it was a well-oiled machine when I was there, Russell. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Um, so I was running the radio station. And keep in mind, you know, my tuition is tied into this. So it's the end of the semester. And they to get DJs, like some DJs had to get the gig because it was like part of whatever their class was. And I get a call one night from the from universe from somebody at the station and they said hey uh there's kids in the studio that have locked themselves in the studio and there's uh the smell of marijuana is coming out of the um the studio now the uh, campus police are coming oh no and i'm thinking okay great so i find out later that the dj was a um, a quality young gentleman who went by the name of of cool ass al that oh. was that was his radio <laughs> persona. And he calls me up the next day. I swear to God, this is all true. He calls me up the next day and asks what, when he can um, uh, have his DJ slot back. Cool ass Al after getting busted smoking weed in the, yes. in the studio. Yes. He, he just assumed that it's like, ah, oh, this will blow over. Right. Much like the cloud that I left <laughs> behind last night. Right. So I, I am flipping out at this point. And I told him, okay, you've got to meet me at the station at 7 o'clock in the morning. You know, of course, cool-ass Al is not going to do 7 o'clock in the morning <laughs> because that's just not going to how he be able no. to rolls. So, so he said, well, so I'll be there at that time. So he says he's going to be there. So he actually gets there. So he gets there, and for an – I don't really remember. I had some sort of out-of-body experience. I just screamed at this kid for like an hour. Really? Oh, yeah. At the yeah. age of 21? At the age of 20, 22, Russell. Wow. I'm really mature at this point. Yeah. And so I'm screaming at this kid. And actually, somebody from because the the old um, AM station was also like right tied in, like the same like row basically was right there. And somebody ended up calling like their boss and said, like think of like Mark Nagy is flipping out. Is, is, we, is he okay? They're wondering because I mean honestly, all I remember thinking was <laughs> they're going to take away my tuition. They're going to kick me out of school. I'm not going to get my master's. Long story short, so it wasn't necessarily passing judgment on cool ass Al. It was more self preservation. Oh, it was both. It was absolutely okay. both. Oh, I mean, even at the young Mark Nagy age, I can certainly judge people, yeah. and I can be that way. <laughs> um, but at that point, it was. I'd probably say the majority of it was. I've got to get to May two thousand. I've got to get to May nineteen ninety six. I've got to get my degree, and this is not helping my situation oh, wow. one bit. So yeah, I would assume maybe maybe the station then went through that dark period right after Cool Ass Al. That's quite possible. <laughs> I mean, uh, Cool Ass Al almost derailed the Mark Nagy uh, trajectory. And, and what what would have happened after that? You never know. Cool Ass Al, not so cool. So uh, you said you wanted to be a sportscaster. I mean, was that always? The thing. I mean, did you oh, ever? Yeah. There was never a period where like, I want to be a pilot or anything like that. No, I was. I knew that I wanted to be a sportscaster from the time I was seven years old, and it was when the um, uh, the Miracle on Ice happened. Okay, and that happened about two and a half hours from my house in Albany, and the Olympic torch that year actually ran by our school. I remember everything about this. And they put us all out in the big, long driveway of Loudville Christian. And we had to stand there for like an hour and a half waiting for the, the Olympic torch to run down. I think it was Route 9. That was outside our school. 
And so he saw the torch for a few seconds. So it was great. But I remember this. Also, there was a kid from our school who went to the Miracle on Ice, and she didn't care about hockey at all. I remember always hating that kid. Because I'm like, it would have been the dream experience to go to the Miracle on Ice game. Yeah. So, I re- but I remember watching that game and thinking that how cool it would be to be paid to go to these events. I think even at the age of seven, when I was the shortest kid in my class, I realized I was never going to be a professional athlete. So I thought that this was the best way to be in those arenas. Anybody who becomes a sportscaster, honestly, night, I would, if you're really worth your weight if, to be a TV sportscaster, you don't want to be on set. You don't want to be anchoring. You want to be at the games. Uh-huh. You want to experience that. You want to, the, the energy of the crowd, the, the, those moments. You want to say you were there in person for those things. You don't want to be watching the game on a 13-inch monitor back in, in the sports office. But I knew right from, right from that moment, seven years old, that's all that I wanted to do is be a sportscaster. Al Michaels. Yeah. The, that, that was the defining call Absol- for, at, at that time Absolutely. For you. Absolutely. And, and Al Michaels, remember, too, he, you know, the, the story of everything with that game with Al Michaels, I mean, he had to learn all these, these Russians' names. He hadn't really done much hockey play-by-play, yeah. uh, and it ended up making his career. He already had a solid career at that point if he's doing play-by-play of the Olympics, but it really set him off for the next 40 years. So you, you come down here, you run in UT, uh, despite cool ass Al's best efforts, you're, <laughs> right. you're, not, uh, you're, you're not fired from your position managing the, the campus radio station. What was your first job? To, uh, you know, was it the, the other thing I remember about being at UT and, and, and being younger before the 90s, it's easy now, I think, for people to look and say, oh, there's three sports radio stations in every town and they all have a billion shows. Right. I remember thinking... Uh, you know, in, in sixth grade when I was like, wow, you know, I want to be on a sports radio guy. But there was only one guy, it, yeah. it, Mike Keith, right. in, in town. And it's like I just figured that, well, I'm going to have to go and produce high school basketball games for like 20 years right. before they give me a weekend show. And maybe by the time I'm 40, I can be, uh, you know, I, I can host a daily show or something. And, you know, now there's just opportunity out the wazoo was it difficult? I mean, was it competitive to oh, get yeah. into the TV? Oh, yeah. I mean, what I always wanted to do was be a play-by-play guy. But there aren't that many gigs, especially 20 years ago, to only be a play-by-play guy. Just for TV. For TV. Because yeah. remember, even, you know, that's barely – I mean, ESPN2 had barely started in 96. You know, it started, I think it was 94. Yeah. The end of 93, 94. So that wasn't even really around that much. I mean, now you're at the point you have so many different, you know, sports stations, so many um, – as far as for television, but also just a lot that are web-based. Um, you know, like the NFHS network, you know, we broadcast high school games all across the country. And it's been it's been terrific to work with those guys. Uh, so it, does, it isn't like you have to have a quote-unquote television station anymore. Um, but my first job, I remember I applied. I, uh, God, I, I must send out hundreds of resume tapes. And, you know, especially when you have no money, you know, it's, you know, it's like five bucks a pop to send those tapes, put them in the mail. So that adds up. It isn't like today when you just email your, your resume reel. And I got a job as the sports director of a startup TV station in upstate New York in Watertown, New York, which is an hour north of Syracuse, which means it's a half an hour south of Canada, which tells you how cold it <laughs> wow. is. When people only know your town because it's on the Weather Channel, that's a bad sign for your, your quality of life. 
So, <laughs> but, but I wanted to be a sportscaster. So I moved to Watertown, New York at the age of 23 and was a sports director of a television station in a town I had never been in, covering teams I had no idea who they were. And I uh, worked probably 70, 75 hours a week for $20,000, $24,000 I think I made, salaried, no overtime. 75 hours a week? Oh, yeah, because I loved doing it. I wanted, to, I wanted to get the experience. So the first year and a half, two years I was there, I probably worked at its peak. I worked like a 70-hour week. And then like that last year, I was you know bitter and wanted to get out of there. Then I probably dialed it down to 50. I just wanted to be a sportscaster so bad. It didn't matter that I was driving an hour to go shoot 20 seconds of a high school basketball yeah. game and drive back. I just wanted that experience. I just loved it so much. I remember uh, at, at UT, the one... TV class I took, there was like, there was this slick guy who had worked at TV in Atlanta or something, and he's teaching it. And I guess he just assumed that everybody in the class, their life's goal was to be on CNN or you right. know the the uh, ABC affiliated New York City or something like that. And I just remember thinking it was so odd. The thing that sticks out to me that he said was, "You need to switch jobs every two years." <laughs> <laughs> like if you you know once you've been a place two years you get you're all going to go you're going to start off in Jackson you do that for two years then you need to be moving on and you get to Knoxville two years you need to move on <laughs> and, yeah I mean was that about what it was like starting out in Watertown is yeah after about two years it, well I mean it was I got that two years and I actually was close on a couple of jobs here in Knoxville and didn't get them was that like kind of like a goal is, oh absolutely uh, really I, I, paying attention to Knoxville I wanted to get back to Knoxville or a place like Knoxville so that meant Baton Rouge um that meant you know the Greenville market for Clemson that meant uh you know places like that yeah. is is really where I I wanted to go and Knoxville it was perfect because it was a it was a medium-sized market and the team was right there in your town so I remember always looking at places like Knoxville as a place I want to go so I applied for trying to get back here wasn't able to so I signed another one-year contract and then that another year was popping out, and I was like, oh, sweet God, I, I, can't, I can't take it in Watertown anymore. And I, my joke is that I was in Watertown three years, but really I was in Watertown 21 years <laughs> because they're like dog years, okay? Um, I mean, you know, not a great place if you're young, single, trying to, you know, really get, you know, that, you know, at that time of your life. So take me through, like, what... Like, is there any Watertown stories of just like something where you're like, oh god, this is oh, this god. is not good anymore? Well, they made us go once on it was like a it was like a Veterans Day parade or a Flag Day parade, whatever it was, and they made all the anchors go on at this parade, but and they told us all, okay, we'll get dressed up, which meant like we had to have a jacket and tie on. It's eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And, you know, some of us had also been out socializing the night before. Okay. So people aren't feeling the greatest. And the float, the quote-unquote float, is a pickup truck with the Newswatch 50 logo that somebody slapped it on the side. And, there's, and we're, so we're standing on this pickup truck, like us main anchors. And the tr truck is going back and forth. We're, you know, there, there's barely any place to like hang on. We're thinking we're gonna like get knocked over because <laughs> it's not going like a continual two miles an hour. It'll go like ten miles an hour, then two, then zero, and it's, yeah. it's stopping the whole time. And of course, it's raining, so we have no cover. So we're standing there in the rain, and all we kept thinking was, this is like 
World War II, and they're like, we're like the the um, you know the prisoners of war that they've like are parading through the town, <laughs> and we're waiting to get people like throw garbage it's, at us. It's the Bataan Death March. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, it was so miserable, and I but I remember thinking, it is is this? Do I really want to be a sportscaster this bad? And honestly, the answer was yes. Al Michaels probably did that someday. Al, Al Michaels didn't have to do anything <laughs> like that. Now, I, I'll, I'll say this, though. It was, it was a great place for me to do all my screwing up because it was the late 90s. There's no YouTube. Uh, there's no, our, our newscast is not web-based. You know, you would do your newscast, and then that video is out on its way to Pluto. You know, it'll never be seen again. And that's the problem I think you see in markets now is that, and don't get me wrong, if I was 21 years old, 22 years old, and, you know, one of the local stations wanted to hire me on air as like a weekend sports anchor, I would have jumped at that. It would have been great. But the problem you run into is that you shouldn't be 21, 22 years old and working in this market on air. You should be in Macon, Georgia. You should be in North Platte, Nebraska. You should be in Watertown, New York for a year or two. Get all that stuff out of your system. And then when you get to a medium-sized market, then you're, you're more professional and more ready to go. Now, in markets like even like in Knoxville, I think you see a lot of people on air that simply aren't ready for that gig. Is that just a cost-saving measure because they work cheaper? Absolutely. And that's, that's what it is now. And I know for a fact that there are stations in the market that they get, they basically call some of the better communications universities in the country, and they say, "Hey, give us a couple of your best, you know, people on air," and they end up getting hired right out of school. And and you sh- and I, it's not again, it's nothing against them because yeah. I would have jumped sure. at that too, but it does a disservice to them because you're putting them in a position they shouldn't be in at this point in their careers, and it does a disservice to the viewing audience because they shouldn't have to also see people that are learning as they go. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and that's a shame for the business. But it, it's pure, it is absolutely 100%, 100% financial-based. So was it WATE? Was that the, that's the only station you worked at here, correct? Well, I mean, in, when I was in grad school, I had those two years at the WBAR-TNI okay. thing. And then when I got the job at WATE as the reporter photographer in sports, I did that from 2001 to 2005, and then I was a weekend sports anchor from 2005 to 2011. So in total, I worked 10 years at Channel 6. Was that a pretty joyous occasion when you did get that job and got out oh. of Watertown, got, the, got to come down well, to Knoxville? Well, there was something in between. Uh, so I was at three years in Watertown, and then I worked for a year in Myrtle Beach. And inc- oh, that's right. Yeah. And then incredibly... The station I worked at in Myrtle Beach was even worse than the station in Watertown because it was another startup, and, like, the cameras barely worked, and they, like, had some sort of, like, film on them, so, like, it would be on air looking like the, like the camera was cloudy. And um, it was this Fox station, and I was there for 14 months and then got the job in Knoxville, and literally within one week I had gotten the job. I was actually on a vacation. I called my boss to tell I give my two weeks notice I called my boss to say hey I, my flake I canceled I'm not going to be there the next day and he goes well you're not going to have to worry about that because we just told everybody that we're abandoning newscasts the station is no longer going to be doing news wow so I was within a week of not having any type of employment whatsoever so I was in Watertown for three years Myrtle Beach for 14 months 
and then got the job in Knoxville. And getting that, getting this gig in Knoxville is one of the. Uh, it was it was it was a dream because uh, this is where I wanted to be. I wanted to be back in a place like Knoxville. It was even more perfect to be in Knoxville. I was in a place I already knew. Yeah. It was a teams I already knew, and I already had a lot of friends that still lived in the area. So anybody who works in TV, very rarely do you move somewhere that you know people. So it was great. I, I loved it. So you you're working at a super cool facility over there on Broadway, Greystone. Uh, Jim Wogan is yep. is there. Um, Lori Tucker, Gene Patterson, yep. right, some icons of of local TV. That had to be a wonderful experience. Oh, it was terrific. And I knew Gene from our time at BIR, and Gene had just gotten hired at WAT like a few months before that. Um, and you know, and you know, Matt Hinkin was there at the time, and and it, you know, learned a lot under Jim. Um, and I was there in two thousand one. You know, which was kind of in a way the which was absolutely in a way the last time that Tennessee really got a shot at that brass ring. Yeah. And I remember covering Tennessee that 2001 year and it was one of those situations where I'm not going to say you took it for granted but you almost felt maybe but you, you felt like that train was never going to go off the tracks because it was just rolling at that point from 95 to that 2001 year. Tennessee football is as good as Tennessee football has ever been. And honestly, you can look at six, seven-year stretches for a lot of teams in the modern era, and there's there's not a lot better than what no. Tennessee is. I mean, obviously some of this Alabama run. Uh, Florida State didn't really have this kind of a run you know, I mean, Jim. You know, I mean, Jimbo Fisher had it, but it was really shorter because you had, you know, Jameis Winston during part of that time. So that was a short run. Maybe now we're in that Clemson period of time now. Uh, but they, but if you look at it, I mean, really, let, let's think about it. From mid '90s to now, it's hard to find many teams with a better seven-year stretch than that '95 to 2001. Yeah, I think '95 uh, to '99. I think they went 45 and five. It was. Yeah, <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, two thousand was a down year, and they went eight and three, uh, and and they had you know they had a quarterback. I remember thinking like that was that that was a throwaway. It was an year. awful it was year. Just, they, it was the AJ Suggs year. It was the AJ Suggs year. Remember, I, Tennessee that year in two thousand, uh, they lost at LSU in overtime, and they lost at Georgia. They lost at Florida on the Gaffney play. Yeah. Okay. They should have beat LSU. They get that great comeback, and then lost in overtime. They obviously should have beat Florida. So really, you can make a case that that should have been a ten and one kind of team. But it's funny because that year, I remember everybody thinking, "Oh, what an awful year!" You know, they were at eight three. There were only eleven games in the regular season at that point. They still played in the Cotton Bowl. Were you, were you at that Cotton Bowl game? The it was like <laughs> no. two degrees in no, Dallas. But I had friends who went to that game. They had not brought any type of oh, no. cold gear. I, I did have a friend who uh, had a few too many pops before the game, and he doesn't remember much about the game, but someone told me, or told him, he says, yeah, what was the discussion you were having with Doug Dickey about? And he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he goes, you were yelling at Doug Dickey, like, face-to-face for, like, five straight <laughs> minutes about something, and he had no, con- no, no recollection <laughs> of it. I would have paid $100 oh easy cash money to hear what that conversation would have been like. Again, not me, one of my friends that, w- that actually was in Dallas that day, apparently uh, in the cold, decided it would be a good idea to let Doug Dickey w- think about <laughs> what, he, what he really thought about Doug Dickey, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that liquid courage. Surging through them, huh? It, it was, but but if you look at those teams, I I mean, 
the the talent that was on those teams, even that 2001 Tennessee team was absurd. I remember working at Channel 6 and having, like, in then spring 2002, and it was one of the times I was actually anchoring. I anchored NFL Draft Weekend. And it was, like, constantly Tennessee player drafted, Tennessee player drafted. We had to keep, like, updating our show and keep putting different video in because guys kept getting drafted. And then in the years that followed, it, it kept going like that. I mean, that too, I, I've said this a hundred times. I don't think the 2001 Tennessee team would have beaten Miami. That 2001 Miami team was a historic yeah, team. Were. That is one of the best teams, if not the best college football team of all time, when you look at what that roster was. Sure. That said, Tennessee would have given a hell of a lot better game than, than Nebraska. Nebraska. No. Yes, and because Tennessee had enough offensively on that 2001 team uh, to, to to play with them. Well, and was remember, it like a 60-point beatdown or something? It was just it was, it what, was not Nebraska game? Yeah, that was, was awful. That was a weird year. Remember, Colorado destroyed Nebraska at the end of the regular season, but Colorado had two losses. Yeah. Uh, Oklahoma lost late, and then Tennessee obviously lost in the SEC championship game. So all of a sudden it was like Nebraska just the beat the computers just spit out Nebraska. And that Nebraska team got just manhandled. I mean, that, but that, that, that Miami team could have scored 70 if they had wanted to that day. Um, but that Tennessee team, that 2001 team, also the other part of it was, too, remember Casey Clawson didn't give a rip. I mean, he, he didn't feel pressure at all. I mean, it was everybody going down to Gainesville that 2001 year, he was like, whatever. And you needed somebody like that in those situations because way too many quarterbacks would have wilted under the pressure of that Gainesville moment in 2001 and then would have a few weeks later in the Rose Bowl against that Miami team. Clawson wouldn't – I don't know if they would have played within 15 points, but Clawson wouldn't have felt any pressure. But remember, you have Casey Clawson, uh, you have uh, Travis Stevens, you have Kelly Washington, you have Jason Witten, you have Troy Fleming, you have Dante Stallworth. That was just an absurd amount of talent and a dominant offensive line. That was an absurd offensive team. They would have given Miami a game. It was the ultimate, like, pick-your-poison offense because you, you couldn't – that was what happened to Florida in that game was, you, you know, if you set back and don't let Clawson beat you, he's going to hit Witten over the middle and just yep. pick you apart. If you gang up and try and pressure him, you know, he's going to go deep to one of the receivers. If you try and do anything in between, they're just going to line up and smash you. I mean, it was it was uh, it was a beautiful beautiful thing to watch when the, it was the, working. The Travis Stevens game at Florida almost kind of gets forgotten in Tennessee lore because they lost a week later, and that's a shame because that's as do, as many great running backs that Tennessee has had over the years, and they've had so many. That Travis Stevens game was just was a dominant offensive line and a dominant running back that remember. Was was a big part of the 1998 national championship team. Sure, he took a late red shirt to have that fifth year to be yeah. the guy. Boy, you never see that anymore. Never the, the late red shirt because you had Travis Henry was the guy, especially like 99 and 2000, and Stevens took that late red shirt so that he would be the guy in 2001. Yeah. And he was the guy, and that Florida game was it. I mean, he, that was his game. I mean, especially that fourth quarter where Florida get tired and he just was just mashing people and got the team in the position to the goal line and that's when Jabari Davis scored on a couple of short touchdown runs well, well think about that you know the what ifs in, in the red shirt game what if uh, T Martin had red shirted in 1996 oh right have had the the slow start you probably it wouldn't have come down to the Gaffney catch in, in 2000 I mean you probably would have had a much better team uh, that year as well but yeah a lot of a lot of what ifs there so 
at what point, obviously that was a great time when Tennessee is just killing it. Uh, at, at what point did you, and we should back up here a minute in your intro, I should have said you are no longer Mark Nagy TV sports guy. You are right. Mark Nagy uh, TDOT, Tennessee Department of Transportation Community Relations Officer. That's right. At what point did you start to have second thoughts about her being in TV, or was that a gradual process? Like, how, how did your exit come about? Well, it was a gradual process. Um, you know, I've got two daughters, and the, uh, they were born in 2006 and 2009. And as time went on, you just realized, look, working 46 weekends a year and literally hundreds of nights a year, is not conducive to having kids. And I, I just, it, and it just wasn't as much fun as it had used to be. And part of it too was I was anchoring. I wasn't really going to many games. Um, I remember Lane Kiffin's year, I didn't go to one game in person. And, you know, I think probably that my last two or three years that I was a sportscaster, I probably went to two games total. And, and that's and it just wasn't fun. It was like, it was one of those situations. Like, look, if I'm making enough money, mm-hmm. I, that can, then I can I can give, I, I can accept sure. not being home as much, or I can accept not going to the games. Yeah, not having ex- as much fun. Not or, having yeah. as much fun. But it's TV. You're just not making that much to make it to make it worth it. And I was at the point where I wasn't going to go get a job in Kansas City or Portland or wherever it was going to be. Was that ever uh, did did you ever have a uh, desire to go and, and take a shot at the one of the big markets? Yeah, I mean I I remember I thought that I was going to like you kind of joked about the two year thing. I thought I was going to be in Knoxville for a couple of years and then would be on to Portland or Kansas City or wherever it was going to be. And I remember I got I had an interview opportunity in in Nashville and the money just wasn't worth it. I remember even calling the night before and said, look, it's just, I, I'm just not going to do it because the money just wasn't huh. worth it. And I remember being close on a couple other gigs. Um, even before, I was close on a job in Salt Lake City when I was in Watertown. Yeah, so I had to go from Watertown, New York, market 170 to the city that then a few years later hosted the Olympics. You know, and had the Utah Jazz there. It would have been a, a great gig. Um, but I got to the point then late in my career that it, it just it just wasn't fun anymore. I'd be leaving, and and it was it was like it was even okay during football season, but it but during during basketball season, from August to April, it was kind of okay because you knew what you were doing every single day, and then it was like okay, it's a Saturday night in June, no one is watching TV. There's no one watching the sportscast, and I'm sitting here trying to find a way to fill four and a half minutes when there's nothing going on, and it it just became tiresome yeah so i got to two and you know i'd gotten through the pearl era and the pearl era was a lot of fun and so i got to go to some of the basketball road trips and and that was enjoyable but i I remember getting to 2011 and here's and here's the story so i covered the nascar media tour and it was with and that was always one of my favorite things to cover all year because it was great access to the drivers and seeing a bunch of people you see every year and, and enjoy their company and, you know, have, have some pops and, and at the end of every day. And yeah. it's just a fun experience. And I'm sitting there on a Sunday night, and it was I still remember this. It was me, a guy named Chris Whitley, who was working in Virginia, along with Daryl Hobby, who was working at WVLT at the time, and Chris Budden, who was working at WBR. And we're just sitting there just talking and having a good time, and I remember thinking, I don't want to be here. I want to be home with my kids. 
And and she, you know, they even could sense it. They even said, it, like, what's wrong with you? And I said, I, I'm just, you know, not feeling it tonight, whatever. And then about 20, 30 minutes later, just Chris in passing mentions, hey, did you hear Yvette Martinez is leaving TDOT? And she was the community relations officer at TDOT at the time. And Yvette had worked in the market. And so I knew Yvette well. And I said, no, I, I, didn't, I hadn't heard that. And I went right back to the hotel room that night at like 2 o'clock in the morning. I sent her an email said, tell me about the job. And she gave me the information. I went in and talked to some folks. A few months later, they had hired a commissioner. Uh, they hired somebody else. They bring in the chief, the, the Lindsay Botts, who ended up becoming the chief of staff. And she says, well, why do you want this job? And, you know, normally when you take these interviews, you're supposed to say, I want to be a real asset. I feel like I could be a real yeah. asset. And I said, I want to get out of my TV I job. I want to be home. Yeah. That's what I said. I said, I want to be yeah. home. And then obviously, you know, we talked about things like, well, how could you handle, you know, pressure if there's, you know, something happens on a weekend or you have to get something done by 5 o'clock? I said, as a sportscaster, I had deadlines at 5, 520, 550, 6.20, 10.20, So if you're telling me there's something that's got to be done in a certain amount of time, I deal with deadlines multiple times every single day. And I was blessed enough that they hired me. And it's been a little bit over eight years since then. And I've never regretted getting out of TV one bit. Did you have to learn new skill set? I mean, was that like that? That would, to me, I'm trying to put myself in, in your shoes and getting into the, uh, I mean, would you consider it the public relations field? Like, I, 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 I don't even, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the, they come and say, uh, here's what's going on. We need you to write a press release. I'm like, uh, how do you do that? <laughs> well, the, the, the joke is, I've always, I've made this joke many times as well. When you get out of TV, there's only three things that you can do. You can become a teacher, you can go into pharmaceutical sales, or you can go into a PR media relations type field. Uh And the reason why that's funny is because it's accurate. You can look (laughs) at so many people that used to be TV reporters or TV anchors in this market and other markets, and they all ended up going into a PR. So many of them went into like a PR type field. And the the schedule took getting used to because when you are in TV, it's just constant run and gun the entire time. Find a way to, you know, you know, go through the drive through quick to get something to eat. Otherwise, you may not eat for that nine-hour stretch. As opposed to going to working in, you know, in, in this field where a lot of deadlines are long-term deadlines. It's something that, hey, you've got to get this done by the end of the week. You've got to get this done even a few weeks from now. So it's, it is a, a different mentality. Um, I'll say, though, that working at the Department of Transportation, it's rarely boring. It's always somewhat busy. There's always something going on because it is the department that has a direct effect on the daily lives of all Tennesseans because you're all, every single day, are, are, are going on our interstates and state routes. You're going over bridges. Uh, sure. You know, you, there, there's always something that is involving TDOT. And, you know, not to sounds happier or anything, but I take it as, as a great deal of responsibility. And I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I try to keep people as up-to-date on things going on as, as possible because, you know, our, our goal is that everybody gets home safe every single night. I remember our for, former commissioner, John Schroer, had been at a meeting once, and they said, well, what's the acceptable number for, you know, people – you know, getting a crash or passing away on, on, a, on a Tennessee roadway. And the acceptable number is none. 
I mean, unfortunately, we're at, you know, you, you have the number. Now, unfortunately, the numbers have gone down over the years, but you still have between 900 and 1,000 people that die on Tennessee roadways every single year. And that's people drunk driving, and that's people texting and driving, and that's people driving distracted. Uh, that that's a you know people not wearing their seatbelts. Is that something that comes across your desk? For, like you have to deal with that, uh, or fortunately, I don't have to see those reports. Um, that's more of a THP thing. Okay. But I'm notified of any type of crash that occurs on interstates or state routes in it's East kind Tennessee. kind of a statistic that you have to keep up with. It is, and it's, and it's really depressing. It's sad because these are, you know, th- these are, are moms that didn't get home. These are brothers that didn't get to the game. The, these are the, – because you never get into your car thinking this is the last drive that I'm going to make because so many of these crashes occur within a few miles of your hut. You're, hey, I was just driving to Kroger. You know, and and something happens. So, if if anybody is listening to this, remember the the hands free law is going into effect on July first, and so many of us make that mistake. Oh, I'm just going to look down for two seconds at my phone. I got a text, blah blah. You don't realize you're driving 70 miles an hour. Yeah. There's a big difference between driving 70 miles an hour with both hands behind the wheel and looking straight ahead and driving 70 miles an hour and looking down for two seconds because you're traveling a great distance in those two seconds, and so often you're not able to bring your car to a stop in enough time. I, I think it's, it's insane, and I, I mean, you said I, I will freely admit to, to, to peaking many times when I shouldn't, um, but <laughs> when you're driving down the interstate I-40, just look around you. Yeah. And you can't go more than two cars without seeing somebody looking at their phone on the interstate. Yeah, and I think that the, the hands-free law, I think that is going to make a difference. I think it's going to take some time. I think you're still going to see that, but I think eventually... It's going to be a big revenue source for the state with all the tickets <laughs> they're going to be writing. <laughs> well, you know, think about it this way. There was a time no one wore seatbelts at yeah. all. You know, I, I mean, I'm in a generation as a kid, you would sit in the back seat and put your head in, like, the middle between your parents' oh, yeah. seats. What's going on up here? Yeah, yeah, what's going on? And you never even thought about it. So, But now we're at the point that, really, you're just used to putting on a seatbelt. So, or at least I hope a lot of people yeah. are. I know that I am. It's just second nature. So I think that as time goes on, you're going to have people that realize, look, it's second nature you're just not supposed to look at your phone. You can use the hands-free device and just go from there. And I think that that is going to make a big difference eventually. Well, you're d- despite exiting the sports field, you've been able, it seems, to kind of dip your toes in the waters when you want to, whether it's writing or some TV projects mm-hmm. or even, uh, you know, we bring you on the show and shoot the breeze about whatever's going on uh, on, on the radio. And, um, you know, how, how did that get started? You've uh, – the – the oral history pieces, are, I guess, are kind of the precursor to the book right. that you wrote. Did you have writing experience before you started doing those? Yeah, I'd been writing for, like, the Knoxville Focus newspaper. And, you know, obviously when you're in TV, you're writing, you know, every single day. Okay. Um, but it was different when I started writing articles. And, the, and honestly, when I wrote the oral history articles, part of that was I just realized that there was a niche there that – that just was, wasn't being scratched in the told. market. There were a lot of stories to be told. And the amazing thing was I was stunned. And now don't get me wrong. When I've written the book, there were a lot of people that just that flat out would not talk for the book at all. But what I noticed from the oral history articles is that there was a lot of people that wanted to talk. They just hadn't been asked the questions. You know, the night that Lane Kiffin left. Everybody that was in that media room for that media scrum 
uh, or was around Knoxville January 12th, 2010, whatever the date was. There's just so there was so much more to that story. And then when you went into, I did a royal history on the 1998 Arkansas game. I did a royal history on the Gaffney game in 2000. Um, there was so much to these things, and it was it was interesting getting just kind of that no holds barred look at these things. And I felt, and, and especially, it was the type of thing that certainly I couldn't do in three minutes on a sports cast. So I kind of relished it to be able to like really. You know, delve into it a little bit more, sure. and that man, I'm having a 15 minute discussion with Jason Witten on the side of the road when he calls randomly when I'm, you know, on the way to something. Well, that's great. You know, I I loved every bit of it. It's funny because I did an oral history on that 1998 Arkansas game. I had this great 20 minute discussion with Phil Fulmer. It was terrific, and this is pre AD Fulmer. Okay. Okay. And I'm then done with it, and I look at my recorder, and I. Not pressed record on oh. my recorder, so I had to call. Ooh. I had to be that guy that then called him back and said, "Can I? Can we do this tomorrow? <laughs> can I get? Can I get 15 minutes to you tomorrow?" And Fulmer was great. He said, "Sure, oh, no problem." Man. But I hated it. It felt like a, a complete boob that I had, and and he was and he was still great and really open and honest about everything with that, because that that game still obviously has a historical lore, you know, in 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 Knoxville. So I so answer your question though. Doing things like that, the oral histories, doing some of the play-by-play for high school you know, championship events, it gets that itch out. It gets that sports itch out. I, don't, I never will go back to doing it on a full-time basis again. It's more than enough for me to just do it, you know, pick my spots. I, I can't remember who it was, and I apologize if it was somebody who was on one of these previous podcasts that, that told the story, but it's a very similar thing. They were interviewing Bear Bryant. And it was back, obviously, when Bear Bryant was alive. They called him up on the. It was uh, it was Kessling. It was Bob Kessling. Okay. And he said a young Bob Kessling uh, scored the interview with with Bear Bryant, and you got a call on the phone thing, and he picks up the. Hey, this is the Bear. You know, and right. He, he talked to him for twenty minutes, and he's thinking, "Oh my God, I've got the interview of a lifetime." <laughs> and he gets done, and he realizes like the, the oh, I didn't flip the switch, and it didn't record. Yeah. And. Uh, you're not calling Bear Bryant back in those days. He's still coaching. You're not calling him for a do-over. <laughs> no, no, and that and that's the shame of it because, you know, you don't realize now is that the, those guys are held in such you know you know those historic figures. They're the historic figures now aren't the same. Historic figures like Bear Bryant were so unique. Everybody now is so guarded. Everybody now is not going to – they don't want to say anything that's going to be controversial. Um, you know, Nick Saban goes out there and just hates every minute of talking with people. Um, you know, Dabo is probably now, like, the most, you know, open guy out there. And he's still – face face facts, he's still boring. It's just nobody wants to be – take any type of chance anymore nobody wants to be unique anymore and and that's the shame because that's what the south used to have you know guys in the media were like that the coaches were like that and now it's just extremely generic and i think that's a shame you know where i see that most on the local media scene you talked about the um you know the tv with all the young people and it's it's become so transient is is the thing i mean it used to be you know you had a long career here wogan Kessling, sure. Um, you know all, all these. Uh, Rick Russo's still doing it. Yeah, like all, all these guys who who had longevity, and now it's just a revolving door. 
I remember growing up here in Knoxville, and like the best way to f- keep up with the balls was the new Sentinel. Was sure. Good. And you had John Adams, and Mike Strange was a beat writer, and Jimmy Himes was a beat writer, and you had, you know, this consistency. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not ripping on any of the people that are there now, but there have been a lot of them. And, you know, and it's, right. it's, it's new people with, without many ties. And at some point in, you know, in, in the past 10 years or so, we got to that point where I realized, oh, you know, the people at the local paper are not the – the oracles that they used to be if, if you want that you're going somewhere else well the shame of it is is that i i even remember when jim retired when jim wogan retired i got asked by a bunch of people it's like probably 2014 i've been at dot for about for a few years mm-hmm. i got asked by a bunch of people i said well do you want to go back and do that and i said the only reason why i would want to go back and do that is if it paid what jim was you know, in the, in the in the neighborhood that Jim was making, and think about it. I had been, I, I was someone known in the market. I was somebody that had 15 years experience with so many of those in an SEC market. Uh, you know, I, I felt like I was worth that kind of thing. And then they ended up hiring uh, Michael Spencer, who had a couple of years out of Amarillo. Now Michael's really good. And, he's Mike, in Denver now. and now he's oh. in Denver. I mean, he was a great hire for them, but he was there two years and, the, and then moved on. But it was the fact that they hired somebody with limited experience that proved to me, and it, I, it, it proved that they're just not going to pay for those type of gigs anymore. Uh, I mean, that that's just the way that the, the business is now. And that's a shame because that's why people are not satisfied just staying in, in a place like here. And again, I, I do think that the viewers that that it's it's a disservice to the viewers because they should have a, a, a higher quality of broadcast oh, the the other thing that i find interesting from from that period of time we talk about you know the when the, when the news sentinel was the kind of go-to for tennessee news i remember waiting up to watch the 11 o'clock news just for that three minutes yeah because that's all you would get there's no online source or anything so um, even if it was just to watch three minutes of the Tennessee basketball highlights against Tennessee Tech, right. I would make it a point to stay, you know, and try and, and catch, you know, eat as, as much of it as I can from, from all the channels just to, just to get that fix. Right. And, of course, with, with the Internet and the on-demand nature of sports coverage, that's just not something people do anymore. No, and it's funny because you can – if you ever get a chance to, like, talk to somebody like Bud Ford – and hear those stories where they basically would, on the Sunday after a Tennessee game, would have to take the tapes of like their highlights that they had edited and drive them yeah. all across the state so that they would have them in those, those newscasts. They had to make copies of them and then drive them out to Jackson, drive them to Memphis, drive them to Nashville, drive them to the Tri-Cities. I mean, it was, it was, a, different, it was a different world then. And, I, I mean, it's just different now. It's the fact that now you can watch – any Tennessee football game you want at any time. There's not even the pay-per-view deal anymore. All 12 games, if you want to watch them, you can. You, you, and you can have it on basically your basic cable service or watch online or whatever it is. And that's great. But it also doesn't make it as must-see TV. It doesn't make it as pressing when you know you can just watch that team anytime. Um you know, and and so that's and that's just the the age that that we live in. But 
One thing I was going to say is you kind of mentioned how it's become like more of a transient thing in this yeah. market. Honestly, that was a big part of why Tennessee has struggled the past decade or so. Because you had so many people that moved into positions of power in that athletic department that had no real connection to the University of Tennessee. When Tennessee was in its glory days in the 90s, you know, uh, Phil Fulmer, Doug Dickey, Dr. Joe Johnson, these were well-respected people. Mm -hmm. These are people you may not agree with what they're saying, but you knew that they had the best interests of the University of Tennessee academically and athletically at heart. And I think that there were a lot of decisions made during that dark time of the past 10 years where you had to question, are they really in this for UT or are they in this for personal gain or are they just is this just on a whim? And that's I think it's changing now, yeah. but I think that's a big part of why Tennessee went through that downturn. A lot of longtime University of Tennessee employees, academically and athletic in the athletic department, were either forced out the door or said, I can't take this anymore and retired. And that left a lot of people in very important positions over there that honestly just looked at Tennessee as a stepping stone. And you did not have that for a long time, and you've had that since then. I think that's one of the things that gives so many people hope with Coach Fulmer back Certainly. over there is I know he's uh, a capable athletics director who wants the best for all the, you know, the Title IX sports and wants to keep you know, Tennessee's budget in the black and all that stuff. But I think there's also, you know, that even more so than the fans, than the, the hardest of the hardcores, he wants to win for winning itself just on a visceral level because he loves Tennessee and he loves winning and it pains him to see what's happening here. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Dave Hart is a competitor and wanted to win, Mike Hamilton and all those guys. But I, I, there's got to be something different to somebody who played it and, and coached it and felt it. Yes. And remember, Phil Fulmer, when he was fired in 2008, had spent 34 of the previous 40 years of his adult life as a player, as a grad assistant, as an assistant, or as the head coach at the University of Tennessee. This is where he wanted to be more than any place else. He had a couple feelers over the years. You can say whatever you want about the quote-unquote coup d'etat when Majors was forced out in 1993. Yeah. Fulmer had been offered other gigs. Um, Fulmer had been offered opportunities in the NFL in that glory time in the late 90s going into the early 2000s. But Tennessee is still where he wanted to be. So when he – and remember that day when he said, I love Tennessee too much – to let her stay divided. Yeah. That was, it was funny because people didn't feel that from Fulmer until that moment. That's what it took. Were I mean, you he, at that press conference? That is probably one of the top three uh. most memorable moments of my sportscasting career because that day, that was the tensest I, yeah. I can ever remember any room being because the entire football team goes into that um, that locker room interview area. There was a and because I was there too, there was an edge. Oh yeah, in there. And I remember like driving down there, and like I knew that it was an important deal that I was going to, but I was probably listening to some music or something. And I had my little tape recorder, and uh, you know, get get out and park. And I'm walking down there. Hey, you know, how's it going? You know, right. and, then, and then as soon as I walked in that door, it was like you could feel it. It yeah. was like whoa. You like, know, uh, I know. You better 
wipe that smile off your face and don't even think about sitting down because these football players have taken the seats. You know, like, just find a place to stand and do the best you can. I was told by somebody that I worked in, I, that I knew very well that works in the athletic department that the plan that day was for President Peterson, Mike Hamilton, and Phil Fulmer to all be sitting up at the table at the same time. And when uh, Peterson saw all the players show up, he decided, I'm going to stand in the back of the room, and once the press conference took, started to take place, he bolted because he wanted no part of being in that situation, which really says something about his tenure as UT yeah. president. Leadership. And, right. <laughs> and that left Mike Hamilton to take all the blows. Oh. Okay, so – and remember – Mike Hamilton got yelled at by players. I think it was Josh Briscoe, might have, who just said, yeah. what, it's all about money, yeah. and yells at in the middle of this press conference. I mean, it was a surreal situation. and But, it, but that's what it was. It was that people knew that Fulmer was a Tennessee guy from Tennessee, chose Tennessee, wanted to be a Tennessee, but they never felt it from him like they did that day. And it's, it's really kind of a shame that it took that long because if – you know, hindsight twenty twenty was the firing the right thing to do was the wrong thing to do. If they make a good hire, if they hire Gary Patterson, then you can probably look at it and say, no, it was the right move at the right time. But when you make the honestly just an awful hire in Lane Kiffin, considering what ended up happening later, and the fact that he honestly was not ready for that gig, then you can look back and say it was an awful move. So that was a, a wild scene press scene at UT you mentioned the the night Kiffin left you have written and, and spoken about this extensively we're coming up on the 10th anniversary there's got to be like we got to do something to commemorate that right oh we should have a, a big like meetup a big listener party meetup yeah. somewhere and maybe we could like you know break into the university's uh the the, the Gordon Ball room and and get in there <laughs> Um, because honestly, every time I was in that room, and I wasn't—I haven't been in that room many times in my life. Anytime I was in that room, it's like the ghosts of that night sort of show up. Because that night, still—and I wasn't even there, okay? Because my kid had pneumonia. I didn't even work that day. She had been sleeping on me all day. I didn't even know anything had happened that day. And then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. But if you remember that thing, that showed you how much. Um, how much the no one in that department was on the same page because Mike Hamilton was out of town. The next thing you know, somebody who no longer works in the university is having a press conference on the campus of the University of Tennessee. It makes no sense. The, the, the moment that Lane Kiffin told Mike Hamilton, uh, I'm resigning, I'm no longer going to be the head coach here, they should have said okay, and they should have immediately took his um, – uh, they Bob. Should, yes, exactly. They should have taken all his key stuff. They should have They should have said, okay, we'll pack up all Shut your stuff. Shut down the cell phones. That, now, they did that. That's the thing. They did that with the assistant coaches. There's assistant coaches who didn't even know Lane was leaving until they saw it on the ticker because their, their cell phones were, were cut off. But what they should have done was told Lane, okay, you're no longer the head coach here. Here's security. Lean you off campus. Anybody wants to go talk to you, go to your house. That's what they should have yeah. done. Instead, they said, okay, you're allowed to have a press conference here in the, in the football complex. It was crazy. 
I mean, imagine, imagine anything like that happening today. Imagine Jimbo Fisher when he left uh, Florida State about a year or two ago saying, hey, I'm going to have a uh, press conference right here in the, uh, in the football stadium. I feel like it, it would have been wild and that would have been weird, but I feel like if they had just said, okay, we're going to do it without any restrictions, whatever the TV right. embargo was, I feel like if they had just done it like a regular you know, 10-minute press conference, I feel like – it would have been fine and, and not that memorable, but I feel right. like the the showdown. No, that's what did. That's uh, that's what did it. It was it was Lane's Lane saying, "Okay, I'm gonna have a press conference here, but I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna let the video cameras roll." And I talked to Lane for the book, and he still maintains that that was the right call because he wanted to have the presser. He wanted to have the big one in um, in Los Angeles. Which but is he, such a, again, we, such a slap in the face for Tennessee is. and another reason it, that it, it, it's like, no, we, we're not taking backseat. I'm right. glad you got your dream job, but if we're doing it at Tennessee, we're doing it by Tennessee's rules. Right, and, and, and part of that was, honestly, that Bud Ford didn't have the relationship with, with Lane that he had with Phil Fulmer. And, um, you know, Bud's, Bud's talked about that before. He... Bud gets a lot of blame for what happened that night, but it's not fair to Bud. Bud was trying to do what was best for the University of Tennessee. Everybody, it's it's not Bud's fault. It's not Lane. It's everyone's fault. It's media's fault. It's the fan. It's the students that tried to break in to the complex. It's the dudes who set the the mattress on fire. There's nobody that comes out of that night looking in a in a positive way. Um, I mean, I, and. You know, Bill Shorey was the former news director at uh, at Channel 10, and he got so much grief for being the guy that said, "No, we're gonna, you know, we're not allowing this to happen." But he, on a, I look at, he was in the right, yeah, because it's not, it is not fair for one segment of the of the media to get to get what they need yeah. and one segment not to. And that, and that that was his whole sticking point. Well, and for the radio people and newspaper and the writers who who took issue with that, it's like it's Tennessee football, man. We're not often confronted with matters of journalistic ethics, right. you know. So like we didn't know the rules there and I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know right. how I would have reacted. I probably just sat there and and, and watched with a grin. On my Honestly, face, I was but, in, I was in TV yeah. and now I look back, I probably would have been just stunned and, and not said anything. I would have been because I I don't because nobody I ever, think your boy Jim Wogan kind of like he he's one of the few that ended up looking pretty good there when he got up there and he was kind of like trying to mediate. He was. He the was issue. He, no, he was he was trying to be Switzerland. <laughs> I mean, that's what he was—he was trying to do. Um, but it was at that point, it was—it was a locomotive that was out of control. There was just no way to uh, uh, to stop it at that point. So th- that that night, it's funny because I remember always thinking that that day would be the the coup de gras when it came to Tennessee <laughs> that'll, athletics. That'll be it, and that'll be well, it. I mean, and then she, but then Shiano yeah. Sunday happened, and nothing will ever top Shiano Sunday. And I even, I'm, I'm a Night Kiffin left Homer. I am. <laughs> I, 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 for a big long, fan of the classics. I am huh? for, I for a long time tried to say, okay, no, that's it's one A. Then Shiano Sunday or one A and one B. It's okay. And and now I've I've realized no, nothing will ever top that five hour period on Shiano Sunday. Nothing will ever top that in terms of just the most strange situation any athletic department can go through. No, that that was absolutely nuts, and, and you wrote about that extensively in, in the book, which uh, we invite folks to go get uh, at, at Amazon, and um, I would say wherever books are sold, but uh, Amazon just be is probably Amazon. the best way to, right. to find that. Yeah. that's pro- And that's where uh, most books will probably be. 
in the future, but um, that's going to be a hard one to top, man, Oceano Sunday. I mean, we, we say, like, oh, this is rock bottom or this is the end, things are turned around, but I've, I've learned over the years not to say that when it comes to Tennessee athletics. Oh, no, you have no idea what's, what's going to happen going forward. I mean, I, it, last season, let's, let's face it, though, last season compared to the past 10 was fairly boring, and that's probably what Tennessee needs yeah. in terms of their football program. Because, you know, Butch never never was comfortable in this situation. He, he tried to do things that just made no sense. He cared way too much about these little things that made no sense. It was kind of like Dooley. <laughs> you know, Dooley would flip out because a trash can was turned 45 degrees when it should be turned 90 degrees. When you're the head coach, you shouldn't that, – that should not be even on your radar yeah. whatsoever. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt just cares about football. That's what he wants to do. I mean, and there, there are certainly some things that he does which I take issue with. I think that he should be better in media. I think he should open it up more. I think there should be more open practices. I think that he should have uh, his assistants be able to talk more. Um, but at the end of the day, this is just the way that he wants to do things. He wants to have it as one singular voice for that department. Is that going to mean that all of a sudden the team's going to start winning nine games a year? I guess we're going to find out. I just think it's a it's a tough spot for him to be in, and fans don't want to. It sucks for fans because you don't want to admit that your coach is having on the job training. But here's a guy who's a he's like he's our age, man, and he, yeah. it's, this is his first head coaching job ever, right? And and it's in the SEC with a massive rebuild, right? With a fan base that is fed up over it, doesn't want to hear any more excuses. Well, the fact that you know. He started bitching at the fans for not showing up at that orange and white game. That that's one of those things that I think as time goes on, he'll learn. Sure. Look, you're not you're not saving. You, you can't sit here and bark at the fans who are coming off of a four and eight season, the worst season in 120 plus years of Tennessee football, and then get mad at them because they're not going to the to the scrimmage. You, you can't. I mean, it, it, you know, and I I can't imagine that there's any recruit out there that's going to say, well, you know what, I really thought about going to Tennessee, but that spring game only had fifty five thousand people, <laughs> so instead of seventy two, so I'm not I'm not going to go there now. Um, I mean, and and those are things I think that he's going to learn from. I can't imagine that the next time that Tennessee has a spring game that he's going to bitch at the fans again. I, I just I I would be floored if he did. Um, and and he's had the look, he's had his this one year. He's had one full year plus now, one and a half, basically, that he's been in East Tennessee. Gets more and more of a feel for it. Looks like recruiting is on a bit of an uptick over the past week, week and a half or so. And, uh, you know, you, you'll see how it goes. At the end of the day, all this stuff doesn't matter if Tennessee football is getting back to what Tennessee football can be. But you're in the age of Saban. It's hard to win right now. And it's hard to win. I mean, George has got that rolling right now. Yep. They can't beat Muschamp for whatever reason. Tessie's 0-7 against Will Muschamp. You've lost five of your last seven games against Vanderbilt. Well, that, this, that's more you know, I mean, we just got to – you got to, you know, you got to be able to crawl before you can walk, man. You got to yep. be able to beat Vanderbilt, Missouri, South Carolina. Like, that. that's who you're chasing right now. I mean, like, I, in my opinion, I mean, they're so far away from, you know, even Florida. Uh, yeah. In their, I know they're in their second year of Mullen, but like I don't think Tennessee's on that level. Georgia, Alabama, I mean that to me that's several years away. Yeah. No. It's it's 
it is not going to happen overnight at Tennessee. I know it's happened very quickly at a place like Florida State when they got Jameis, but those are they you know, know they didn't fall into the depths that Tennessee did. Right, exactly. Yeah, they were they were never what that four and eight team and was. they're not going they're not fighting the level of opponents, the level of schedule that Tennessee was at that time they weren't. True. No, you're Just before Clemson had become Clemson. Yeah, the SEC isn't what the SEC was at the end of the former era and the beginning of the Dooley era, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. You know, and I mean, so so it's it's going to – I know Tennessee fans don't want to hear that, but it is going to take some time. And if you're not patient with this, well, look, if, if then if you get mad and want there to be a coaching change, look, you're starting from scratch with another guy. So you're at the point – you just kind of got to roll with Jeremy Pruitt see how things go, and look, if you're in year five, year four, year five, and you're not making, you know, the, the progress like you should, then you go and get another guy. Do it again. You do it again. Until I mean, you get it right. Right. I mean, what, what, what's the alternative? So, I mean. Can't give up, man. Well, well, Never give up. No, I mean, here's the thing. Tennessee fans, there was a time where Tennessee fans were extremely patient, and I know basketball at that time wasn't as big as it is now. But let's all remember, Tennessee fans, the majority of Tennessee fans, were more than willing to give Buzz Peterson a fifth year because Buzz Peterson was a very nice person. That was it. Don't forget he had uh, Tyler Smith and Jamont Gordon coming in. Well, he did. That was going to turn it around. He did. That was going to turn around. There was always (laughs) something that was going to turn around. But that was always my favorite thing about the Buzz deal is Buzz, God bless him, he cannot coach his way out of a paper bag. They found ways to lose games that defied all type of logic, and he just had no idea what he was doing. But they, he almost got, he came very close to getting that fifth year. And then Mike, though, Mike Hamilton fired him, caught lightning in a bottle with Pearl. That's all about good timing. But Buzz nearly got that fifth year. So, but Tennessee fans aren't like that anymore. They, they, they're just, they've been through so much over the past decade, they're just not willing to, to do that one more time. Well, Mark, uh, thanks for giving me so much time, man. Uh, I hope that you get to write your happy epilogue someday. I for, hope so, too. For the, for the book. I hope it's not all just uh, doom and gloom. I haven't read the, the new chapter. I mean, is it? Oh, um, it's spectacular. Yeah. It's the greatest chapter in the history of, of literature. It really <laughs> yeah, is. is it pure Shakespeare? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean uh, you've got to look at this last chapter, and when you're reading it, you've got to be thinking, man, this is straight up some Hemingway stuff. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, it is that good. Unbelievable. Hey, uh, real quick in closing, uh, I've asked uh, all my guests so far uh, to give me a, a funny story. I know you've got a bunch of them from working in TV. Uh, did you have – Todd Howell told about uh, the time he accidentally killed uh, Patsy Cline – or resurrected Patsy Cline uh, live on air, didn't know she had been – that she was dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's going to be performing here at the Chill Howie Center. Uh, we've had a, a couple of good ones like that. Do you have anything that live television – Disasters that stand out to you? Well, there were there was there have been a couple of great moments or that I found that were funny. There was one I still remember. I'm waiting for like the them to take the tapes. There was a problem with the tapes, and I'm just trying to like stretch and stretch and stretch. And finally, I just looked at the camera and just said, "Let me paint you a picture of what is <laughs> of what has happened here." But my favorite TV thing is I'm probably I'm trying to think. I was in oh I was in Watertown, New York. And back to Watertown. Back to Watertown. And I am uh, – and the boss asks me to go on this radio show 
to do like a promo for the station. And they end up having me with, with these hosts. And these hosts start talking about TV and sports and whatever. And then they start talking about, they talk about Mark Nagy. Like I'm not the one having the interview with them. And I'm trying to, I don't want to talk about myself in the third person. So I said, well, you know, I'm, when I'm on the air and blah, 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 and I'm doing this, and then I just try to, you know, get, make sure I get the highlights on, whatever it is, you know, Watertown to High, South Jeff High, whatever it is. And the guy just keeps on, like, saying, well, what is – he says, like, what is – does Mark Nagy get all his tapes in on time or whatever it is? And finally, he looks at me, swear to God, he looks at me and he goes, so then, then you know Mark Nagy. <laughs> And I look at him and I go, yeah, I am Mark. <laughs> and I swear to God, this is like a 15-minute conversation I'm having with this person. And I'm trying to make I, – I don't want to, like, ever have to say that yeah. because I'm trying to make – I'm trying to, like, get through this, make him realize as we're having this conversation, yeah. look, I'm Mark. You don't yeah. have to be saying any of these things. And instead, finally, I, I just had to, had to say it that way. And – that was that was that was the epitome of small town uh, America. That was small town TV. <laughs> and then it also made me realize, okay, I probably need to get a lot better at being a sportscaster. If um, then then maybe this will never um, this will never happen again. I I will say this as well. Yeah. Since I've gone out of TV, I get recognized a lot, and I joke with my kids that remember your daddy's not famous; he's Knoxville famous. <laughs> but. I was, I was at TDOT one day a few years ago, and this lady walks down the hall, and I walk past her, and she stops me, and she goes, I just want you to know that I really miss you on TV. And I said, well, that, that's very nice. I, I really appreciate that. You know, it's making me feel good, feel a little, little, you know, a little pep in the step. Mm -hmm. And then she goes, I really miss you doing the weather. <laughs> and I look at her. I go, you, you mean the sports? She goes, Right, the sports. <laughs> well, that was very nice of her. It was. It was Good very. Save. It was very nice. But that's what happens. I probably half the time when I would get recognized for my TV life, it was people who like would then ask me what the weather was going to be. I don't know if that's just because people equate people on screen with the weather people because the weather people are always the most popular people at a TV station. And whenever they would say that, well, what, so it was going to storm. I'd say, you got to ask Matt Hinkin. I got no idea. I still have to do that. I'll tell go talk to Todd Howell, go talk to Matt Hinkin, because I have no idea if it's going to rain or not. They will be able to hook you up. Classic. Well, Mark, uh, appreciate it, my man. Uh, real quickly, the book. Uh, yes. Just Amazon.com. Yes, simple enough. Amazon.com. Just look for Decade of Dysfunction. Remember, look for the updated 2019 version. That will give you the 2018 Tennessee chapter. That is the most recent version of the book. That's the one you're going to want to pick up. All right. Good stuff, Mark. Thanks a lot, man. Absolutely, Russell. Great talking to you. All right, folks. There you have it. The one and only Mark Nagy. Go read the book if you haven't read it already. As I said in the intro, it's a very therapeutic read. You will feel better. You will feel better about yourself after you're done. Can't recommend it enough. As always, you can send feedback with a voice message. You can send me voice messages uh, right now from wherever you're listening. Just tap the link in my show notes. Would love to hear some feedback from you. And if you really love me, you can throw a little something in the offering plate at anchor.com. FM. Just search out Russell Smith Podcast at anchor.fm. Got a new one coming soon. Got some good ones scheduled here in the very near future. So keep checking back for future episodes 
and that'll do it for this edition. Y'all be good. We'll do it again soon.